Hi, Reality. It's an honor to worship with you this Christmas. If you're new, welcome. We are a community following Jesus with a specific call to joy. And this Advent season, we have been focusing on the joy of Jesus' arrival. And here we are. We've made it. We made it to the manger, to Jesus' birth. And the main question we'll be asking in our few moments together is, where are we looking for joy? Where are we in our day-to-day lives looking for joy? Try to answer that question. Because in the manger, a bold statement is being made about where we find joy and about how God's kingdom is breaking into our world. And the manger is bold, actually not because of what we see in Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. The manger's bold precisely because of what we don't see in these verses. If you think about it, for the king of the universe to enter our world. These seven verses here seem a a bit underwhelming. Jesus doesn't really look like royalty here. And if you've noticed, this seems to be a bit of a theme with Jesus. If you read the Gospels, ask yourself, if Jesus is a king, why is Jesus here and not there? Why is Jesus relating with them and not them? Why, if Jesus is a king, why does Jesus seem to be a bit out of place wherever he goes? If you haven't started asking these questions, I encourage you to start. Because the answers we get will lead us to a much different king and a much different kingdom than Luke's audience was expecting. And if we're honest, these questions lead us to a much different Jesus than we're expecting. So here in Luke 2, Jesus the King breaks into our world in complete vulnerability and dependence in a manger. Is this where we're looking for joy? Would we have found joy in this manger scene? Let's take a closer look at Luke 2. In the first four verses of Luke 2, we have a few things going on. We have Joseph of the line of David going to Bethlehem, the town of David, for a Roman census. Now, why a Roman census? For taxes. Rome has an empire to run, and this clearly isn't the most convenient census in the world. The estimates that I came across suggested that the distance between Nazareth and Bethlehem would have been about a 90-mile trek. So not the most convenient journey in the world. And on top of this, the Roman census was probably 
a disappointing and discouraging reminder to Joseph and to all of Israel that Israel, the family and the descendants of Abraham, were far from their call as God's chosen people to be a blessing to all the nations. And a small side note about Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary probably weren't the most resourced couple. We see later on in Luke 2 that when they go to the temple for the ceremonial um, cleansing after childbirth, they give an offering of two doves or two pigeons. And if we reference everyone's favorite book, the book of Leviticus, chapter 12 tells us that the traditional offering for the ceremonial cleansing following childbirth is a lamb. Unless you can't afford a lamb, in which case you offer two doves or two pigeons. And I don't exactly know what the price point would have been for a lamb or doves in those days, but it seems like Joseph and Mary weren't the most resourced couple. And so we know very little about Joseph. We're not told a whole lot. But I imagine that at some point during this 90-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, Joseph must have been comparing his current circumstances and the circumstances of Israel to his prestigious family line, the line of David, one of, if not the greatest kings Israel has ever known. And I wonder if in this moment, Joseph was feeling pretty far from royalty. In verse five, we see Joseph went there to Bethlehem to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. The order of operations is a bit off here, um, for this culture especially. Before Joseph and Mary tie the knot, Mary is pregnant. Her explanation is that an angel told her that God would bless her with a child. And I can't imagine that being the most popular or accepted explanation around town. So it seems like the marriage between Joseph and Mary is off to a bit of a rocky start. And then you throw on a 90-mile journey with Mary, who's very, very pregnant at this point. I can't imagine that being very comfortable. These circumstances don't seem particularly ideal. And verse 6 and 7 say, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. As I was studying this text, I asked the group that I was studying with, where do you see joy in this text? Because to me, if you take Luke 2 verses 1 through 7 at face value, I'm having a really hard time finding joy. Well, there's a healthy baby. And yes, we can absolutely take joy in a healthy baby. 
Also, God's promise is being fulfilled from the Old Testament, God's promise through the angel. We can certainly take much joy in God fulfilling his promises. Yes, let's do that. But here's the thing. Put yourself in this situation. If I'm in this situation, I'm at least wondering, God, if this is the Messiah, why these circumstances? If this is Jesus, the Savior we've been waiting for, could we at least get a nice hotel with some accommodations or amenities? Why these circumstances? This seems a bit unideal for any king and his arrival, much less the Messiah. Why did God choose these circumstances? And let's not forget the historical context and the weight of this moment. Israel has been waiting for generations and generations for their savior. Since Genesis 3, they've been waiting for the offspring of a woman who would crush the head of a serpent. And through much heartache and sorrow and loss, through slavery in Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, bitter division and brutal civil war, exile to Babylon. Israel has journeyed through a very long, hard journey to reach what they thought would have been the promised land. And now we reach Luke 2. And at this point, Israel hasn't heard from God through a prophet in about 400 years. And they're probably wondering, God, when are you going to break in? When is our Savior going to arrive? And here Jesus is. He's born and he arrives surrounded with much interruption, uncertainty, inconvenience, probably some disappointment and dashed expectations. This isn't how Israel expected the arrival of their Savior. How is this a recipe for joy? Would we have been overwhelmed with joy at this manger scene? If you're like me and you might miss the joy of this manger or the manger scenes, disappointments, frustrations, uncertainties of our own lives, let's ask the question, where are we looking for our joy? Is it just me? Or do we love to look for Jesus and his joy in the extraordinary and the spectacular? The things that give us a really, really good feeling, at least for a moment. Meanwhile, Jesus encounters us in something that is shockingly ordinary. Maybe even disappointingly ordinary. I think Boston is a great case study for this because Boston craves the spectacular and the extraordinary, right? 
Boston promises so much that seems to offer joy. In one of the more unique pandemic twists, our community finds ourselves worshiping at a church on Newbury Street on Sundays. And I'm sure Newbury Street represents many things, but at least one thing I think it represents is the opportunity to have all of the comforts and luxuries that money can possibly afford. And if you go a couple miles in any direction from this church, you'll come across some of the nation's most extraordinary and exceptional education, medicine, history, business, art, athletics, you take your pick, Boston prides itself on greatness, doesn't it? But let's ask ourselves, for all that Boston has to offer, does Boston offer joy? When you think of Boston, do you think of joy? When you think of your neighborhood, do you think of joy? When you think of your workplace, when you think of yourself, do you think of joy? I'm gonna drive this point home by doing something that I promised myself I wouldn't do. I'm going to invoke the name of Tom Brady. And I told myself, no sports quotes, but I couldn't resist this in his recent Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year interview, Tom Brady says, if anything, I think the most challenging part is the emotional aspect of football for me, Brady says. When we lose, it's depressing. When we win, it's a relief. It's not like the joy, the happiness. It's a relief. Because when we win, sometimes just winning isn't good enough for you because you expect perfection. And when you expect perfection and it's less than perfect, you feel like there's a down part to that. See, the problem with a joy that's rooted in the extraordinary and the spectacular is that this is a thin, circumstantial kind of joy. It's a joy that might offer a strong emotional high, at least for a moment, but it tends to quickly fade. And unfortunately, this kind of joy would probably also have us miss the Jesus of the manger. Have you ever noticed that as we try to live into God's mission in his kingdom, it's really tempting to ignore the Jesus of the manger and instead look to the brightest lights, the, the coolest stage, the most attractive, the most popular, whatever the case may be, whatever is most comfortable and interesting to me. And we say, that's Jesus, right? That's Jesus' mission. Let's go. But is it? I don't know. In the manger, Jesus is introducing an entirely new kingdom, a kingdom that looks much different than people expect. It's a kingdom that comes not by force, 
but by surrender. This is a kingdom not defined by accumulating massive wealth, power, and prestige as we think of those things. It's a kingdom of surrender. This is a kingdom that's defined by a strength, a counterintuitive kind of strength that is perfected through our weakness. It's a kingdom whose king doesn't identify with the religious or the cultural elite. This king identifies with the poor, the outcast, and the lonely. We see this very clearly in Matthew 15 when it says, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will rep reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Let's ask the question again, where are we looking for joy? Are we looking for joy in the Jesus of the manger? And friends, as we journey on this path to discovering Jesus' joy together, let's remember something important. As we journey towards Jesus' joy, there will be an infinite number of supplements and substitutes to this joy. You just need to look at your phone, turn on the TV, go outside, go anywhere. We're going to come across tons of supplements and substitutes to this joy that promise to deliver joy, but do they? Paul addresses something to this effect in his letter to the Colossian church. And the Colossian church found themselves in a city that was a diverse hub for a variety of different thoughts and beliefs. And they were getting pressure from different camps, the secular camp and the religious camp, to supplement Jesus with different philosophies or different customs and practices. And I think it's interesting because it seems like for some reason, in any era, the dominant cultural voices seem to always look Jesus straight in the face and say, yeah, I don't know. Why don't we try to supplement and add this thing to it? Why don't we sprinkle this? Why don't we look to this other thing outside of Jesus? This could be the wisdom of the Greek or the Jew. This could be the wisdom of the secular, the religious, the wisdom of the left, or the wisdom of the right. We're told, look, if we can all agree and get behind this, then all of our problems will be solved and we'll find true joy. And Paul says, no, 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 look, we center on Jesus. And in Colossians 2, verse 17, Paul says this, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. 
you've ever wondered, this passage is where the name of our church family reality originally comes from. And Paul is saying all of these other ways of finding the ultimate solution to our problem, the joy of salvation, don't mistake these things for Jesus. Jesus is the reality to which all of these things point. So friends, how do we practice this joy together in community? We practice this together by discovering that Jesus, the Jesus of the manger, is reality. And as we grow in this reality together, we'll discover a boldness to enter into God's kingdom of surrender and sacrifice. One of my favorite books on joy says this. They start by, begin, by quoting a theologian who says, those who hope in Christ can no longer put up with reality as it is, but begin to suffer under it, to contradict it. When we encounter the God of joy and begin to participate in God's action in the world, we cannot help but swim upstream against the currents of pain and oppression. Knowing joy in a joyless world means fighting and suffering in protest against hatred, apathy, and despair. Who embodies this joy more or this protest more than Jesus. Jesus, who in the grandest protest, as Philippians 2 says, who in being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And why did he do this? As Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus shows us that his joy isn't a flimsy or flaky kind of joy that melts in the face of adversity. We can follow Jesus into his kingdom of surrender and sacrifice because his joy can hold sorrow, pain, and tears. And as we close, let's consider what's the source of this joy? If you're struggling to taste the joy of the manger, and we all will struggle to taste this joy at some point, let me suggest a starting point. This starting point is also the ending point and every point in between, but start here. Start by resting in the unfailing love of Jesus. In the book of John, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you 
and that your joy may be complete. Friends, find much joy in this God whose love doesn't depend on us or our circumstances because his choice to enter our world didn't depend on our circumstances. Find much joy in this God whose love also doesn't ignore our circumstances. Because in the manger, we see our God crying in complete vulnerability and dependence as he enters into our existence. And at the other bookend of Jesus' incarnated life, we see our God again crying in complete vulnerability and dependence as he dies for us on a cross. Friends, this is an extraordinary, spectacular kind of love. So friends, with good news of great joy, let's rejoice in the love of Jesus that broke into our world against all expectations. And as we contend to see Jesus' kingdom break into our world, let's be a people defined by an, by an enduring joy that we can find only in the love of Jesus. It's this love that will compel us to enter into places of despair to share this miraculous joy. And as we do so, we carry a confidence and a boldness described by Paul in Romans 8, when he says that because of Jesus, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Merry Christmas. <laughs>